We all need encouragement, motivation, and inspiration in our life. Each week, Patty will interview guests who will motivate and inspire you through their unique personal and professional experiences. I listen, my mom listens, pretty much the whole family. Listen, my whole family loves it, man. It's drastically changed my life. All of your senses will wake up as you listen to this scrumptious podcast that is sure to tickle your eardrums. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Wake Up with Patty Catter starts now. Hello, everybody. Today, I have an amazing guest on the show with us. I have Michael Schlitz, and I just kind of want to dive right into this interview. It's going to be a good one. Michael, welcome. Uh, I appreciate you having me on, Patty. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I know a lot of people know who you are right now, but I want to go back a little bit in time and discuss your childhood a little bit. Where were you born? What did you like to do as a kid? Uh, I was born in uh, Milan, Illinois, uh, which for people from that area is called the Quad Cities, but I really didn't spend a lot of time there. Uh, my dad being an engineer and, and mom doing uh, kind of contracts, so we moved around a lot as, as a kid, uh, but I've always been very rumbunctious, always kind of the adrenaline junkie, uh, and that definitely led into my teenage years where um, I, I definitely uh, had my fair share of trouble. <laughs> So share with us one of your favorite stories of either when you were a child or a teenager. Uh, well, I, I don't think I'll share the teenage years one because you never know. I might give ideas to teenagers. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I can remember living in Texas and uh, my grandparents lived in Illinois. And of course, there it snows and we were always missing the snow because my grandfather had a huge hill at his house. and We'd always go sledding down the hill. So he finally convinced mom to fly me and my brother up there to visit the grandparents to go sledding in the winter time. And yeah, about two hours into that, we were like, so when do we Texas? Like we were all about the warmth. And I guess that's why the majority of my life, I've pretty much spent it in the South because I don't mm-hmm. do snow. Oh man, me either. I grew up in Michigan and don't miss that cold at all. <laughs> no. And my dad had a contract in Wisconsin uh, during my high school years, and I took my driving test in, at 16 in the snow. And yeah, I'm not, not a fan. So to our listeners who don't know, what branch of service did you go into and how did you decide to do that? Because you know, you're obviously an adrenaline junkie. I'm thinking the military would be perfect for you. When did you decide to join and which branch? Uh, well, I joined the Army, but the decision was kind of tough. Um, I've always wanted to kind of, even as a young child, mom always knew I'd go into some kind of service to others kind of field, whether it be a police officer, fireman, or or the military. Uh, so there was no doubt. Grandfather was was just post-World War II Navy, um, but didn't really talk a whole lot about his time. So we didn't grow up around this big military atmosphere. And my uncles had, were just a little bit too young for Vietnam. So they none of them had gone into the service. Uh, but then my brother, who's two years older, had uh, gone into the Army after high school. And so that was kind of like probably the introduction of me seeing what, what the military life was and the Army life was. And then just because of my rambunctious youth uh, and getting into trouble, I knew I was just too mature to go to college. I just wasn't ready. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I'd just party. 
Uh, so I, need, I knew I didn't also want to work in a factory. So the military for me was something where I thought I would go in for three years, get the GI Bill, and by then figure out what I want to do with my life. And um, so I joined the military at 19, shortly after high school, and fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. What did you do? What was your MOS? I was an infantryman. Um, you know, I, I'm the guy who, again, like you said, adrenaline junkie, I wanted to be in the dirt. I wanted to do the cool guy stuff. So that was a perfect fit for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, many of our listeners, because that we have a lot of mutual friends out there, um, know that you were somehow wounded, but we don't know. I don't even know your whole story. So, um, what kind of happened? What you joined the military, you're in there, trainings finished. Then what happens? Well, you know, I remember being when 9-11 actually happened, I was actually stationed in Korea at the time with their, their, the Lurst attachment. I was on vacation and I was married at the time and the, the ex-wife was, was over there with me and we had just come back from Jeju Island, which is like the Korea version of Hawaii. And we were due to the next day to go to Bali, Indonesia. And um, like I remember watching it on TV, we're at dinner and I told her, hey, it's time time to go back to the hotel i gotta get my work phone and sure enough vacation was over because we didn't know what north korea was going to do during that time so we started picking up um different things on on the peninsula to make sure our safety there and then i came down for drill sergeant orders um which i was trying to get out of because i knew we were going to be going to war i mean the all and um i called branch and they wouldn't let me get out of drill sergeant duty unless I wanted to become a ranger instructor. So um, I chose to go that route, Uh, went to Fort Benning, Georgia, was stationed at 4th Ranger Training Battalion for four years. Everybody kind of, with the the number of deployments that the uh, TONE units were doing at the time, nobody was, we were kind of all locked in, nobody was going anywhere. So I really didn't get my chance to deploy until um, August of 06. Um, years into the war with 10th Mountain Division. And we were deployed to Iraq, uh, to the southwest side of Baghdad, and doing basic infantry infantry stuff. Uh, but our company was split up into three, three different elements. One worked with the Iraqi Army, one did on-the-ground patrols, and one attached to the engineers to do road clearing. And we were the platoon to, to do the infantry mission about six months into the deployment, we realized the the guys that were attached to the engineer unit weren't really getting the experience on the infantry side. So our two platoons flip-flopped and my, my platoon became the road clearing element for the engineers. On 27 February 2007, we went, um, oh, let me back that up. The road clearing mission, uh, which we called Iron Claw, had these huge up-armored vehicles. We had MRABs, we had Huskies, which were the mine-detecting vehicles, and then the Buffalo, which is the gigantic one with the claw and the computers. And so we were getting hit with IEDs. You know, we, we always knew there was only two ways that you find IEDs. They find you or you find disarmament. But the problem during that time frame, which we call the surge, where we had more U.S. troops on the ground than any other time frame in the military, it was just a very violent time, and especially for the IEDs. Uh, so we were getting hit so much that the mechanics couldn't turn those vehicles around fast enough. So I had no choice but to take my commander's Humvee and make it my vehicle as the platoon sergeant and still still make mission. 
Then on 27 February 2007, we were doing a standard 15-hour mission. We are going to go clear all these roads. We brought the boys in. You know, we, we did our mission preps, and, and, and we rolled out just before, before dawn. And we were a couple hours into the mission, and probably as the sun was coming up, this dead-end road, and we had five vehicles with us. So when we got to the end of the, the dead-end road, we turned the vehicles around. We kind of picked up the pace a little bit, and then I heard the boom. Um, the enemy had hid uh, the IED in uh, the metal culverts under the road so that our mine-detecting vehicle couldn't distinguish between the rounds and the culvert. And it was two artillery, two artillery rounds with a propane tank. And as it exploded, it also, the shrapnel and the propane engulfed inside the vehicle. It killed my medic, Sergeant Catavero, and my gunner, Sergeant Susanka, instantly. And then my driver, Corporal Lauren Henry, he passed away because he wasn't escape, able to escape the vehicle and burned alive inside the vehicle. On impact, my door actually came open and threw me from the vehicle. Um, I can remember hearing the explosion. I can remember hitting the ground. And, you know, anybody who's trained in the military, we train for ambushes, that surprised attack that nobody was expecting. And in an ambush, you always take just a split second to kind of get your, your, your bearings. And when I hit the ground, I looked at the vehicle and what I didn't see were my guys. So I just instantly picked up and ran for the vehicle. And as I got closer to the vehicle, that's when I felt the flames hit me in the face and I realized I was on fire. And what do they teach you when you're on fire? You know, get down and roll. Uh, but unfortunately, because of the propane that had been on my uniform, every time I would roll, it would just reignite. And so basically, my muscles just locked up. I mean, the, the, the amounts, amount of pain from being on fire and, and the damage being done, it got to a point where I could no longer roll and I was just laying face down in the dirt. And uh, at that point, precise moment really besides the uh, the intense amount of pain i was in from being on fire i also thought that was it like you know i'm gonna die here in iraq uh face down in the dirt burning alive and about the time you know i was thinking those things my guys were yelling at me from the vehicles but i knew they were you know 7500 meters away and i didn't know what they could do for me and then they hit me with the fire extinguisher and you had two kind of responses from that. You had the, the just the complete relief of this like ice blanket being put on you from the fire extinguisher. I mean, it just kind of relieved the pain for the most part. And then you had the emotional aspect of saying, okay, my guys are here. Uh, I still have a fighting chance. And they did an amazing job getting the, getting the area secure and getting the HVAC in to pick me up. And uh, believe it or not, like just... You know, we have an incredible military. We're well-trained. We plan for things like this. We have technologies at our disposal. And from time of impact to the time I went into my first surgery was 30 minutes. Man, that's a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of things going through my head right now. I, you know, I had never really heard your whole story before. And, um, well, you know, I mean, this, this it's my story, but I mean, honestly, during that time frame, well, going back it, from, you know, they took me to the green zone to Baghdad to, to start operating on me. They had to send a special airplane down from Launchville, Germany to get me. And it took them a while to stabilize me at the table. 
Um, about eight hours later, they got me stable enough to make it to Germany. Had to have a couple more surgeries in Germany because I kept flatlining there. Once I got me stable, then they got me to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, which is the big burn hospital for the military. And in that 06, 07 timeframe, every, every bed in Brook Army Medical Center in the burn ward was filled, the, the burn ICU and the burn ward. Um, so while it's my story, it's a very common story, especially for that time frame. Mm-hmm. When you finally were able to kind of wake up and get with it a little bit, what were your thoughts? I mean, you, you had drastically changed. So a lot of our, you know, you, we have listeners listening and they can't really see what's going on with you. So obviously you have some severe burns. Yeah, so um, I was burned on eighty-five percent of my body. Uh, so basically, head to toe. My my well, not my feet were actually safe because of the boots. So my feet are actually pretty good, but um, pretty much the rest of my body is is considered burnt. Um, I spent six months in ICU, four months in a medically induced coma, which I'm very thankful for because the procedures that they have to do in order to get rid of all the bad skin is is pretty brutal razor blades to your body to get rid of everything. And um, so it's a very painful procedure. So I'm pretty thankful I don't remember most of that. Um, when I did come out of it, um, I was heavily drugged. So my perception of what was going on at the time is slightly altered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they had to kind of keep bringing me back to reality. Uh, my mom and my brother were both bedside at the hospital. And I would try to send them out on missions as if I was still in the combat zone, you know, because mentally I, I didn't realize that, you know, I wasn't even in Iraq anymore. Um, and then they had to convince me my injuries. And we've all heard the term uh, phantom pains or phantom sensations, the feeling like you still have the missing limb. Mm-hmm. Um, so my eyesight was was badly damaged from the the burns and I had to wear these goggles and I really couldn't see. And so my mother was trying to convince me that I didn't have hands anymore. And I felt like I could feel my hands. So I'm like, no, I can feel them. You're wrong. I have hands. Like, you know, the other thing they didn't do is they didn't allow for any mirrors in my room. Um, they didn't want me to see what I looked like uh, from the injury because they were afraid it would put me into a bigger depression. So for the longest time, I'm, I mentally knew I was in bad condition. Uh, I just didn't know exactly how bad it was. Mm-hmm. So do you remember um, the first time that you were able to see yourself? You yeah. Know? I w- yeah. So after about 10 months in the hospital, six months in the um, ICU and four months in the burn ward, uh, they they felt like um, they could finally release me. So we, we had a small house on post uh, close to the hospital that I could go to. And, and so... There, I mean, I, I still really couldn't walk. I was, you know, head to toe bandages at the time. And I pretty much lived in a, in, in the living room in this medical bed. And so I couldn't even get up to look in the mirror. So I want to say it was probably close to 13 months before I saw myself in a mirror. That happened is uh, I, I had started to learn how to walk at that point. And mom being my caregiver had to run to the store real quick. And I'm like, no, go ahead. I'm good. You know, I won't do nothing. And of course, um, (laughs) while she was gone, I had to go to the bathroom. So I walked to the bathroom. And uh, when I turned around, there was a mirror. And that was my first time seeing myself. And uh, I I can remember just my my heart sank. My jaw dropped. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't have eyelids at the time. I didn't have a nose, no ears, badly burned. Uh, You know, I kind of jokingly always made the references, you know, on Halloween, I can always dress up as a zombie and, and not have to do makeup. Um, so it, it, it was a definite 
punch in the gut. But now, I mean, um, I, I'm, this is who I am, and I'm very comfortable in my skin now. But back then, it, it was it was a mental struggle at that point. Mm-hmm. So you did go through reconstruction surgery. I did. I, I was lucky enough to go out to UCLA um, for their operation men out in California and had top-notch doctors, you know, redid my my face, you know, built built me a nose, um, you know, even even did the ears, but I don't really like them and they don't really do anything for me. So I typically don't put them on. Um, so um, I say, I mean, if, if you look at a comparison of what I looked like at 10 months or even at two years to where I was even, you know, at four years after all the surgeries, uh, it's, it's a change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because when I looked at you, I I didn't realize that you had lost even your nose or, you know, I just thought that that's you. And honestly, you're one of the most beautiful people I have ever seen. Um, I appreciate that. No, really, though. You're just such an inspiration. The first time I met you, I just remember you just, your eyes just light up and there's just something about you that is just so special. And, And after going through all of that, here you are still trying to help people. So if we could kind of um, talk a little bit about that, what are you doing now to help others? Well, I realize that people, whether uh, they're in the military and, and had a bad day in combat or they're just your average civilian who, who have struggles, whether it's cancer, other illnesses, financial relationship, everybody has struggles and, and, and everybody handles those things differently. So I try to use what I've been through to motivate others. Um, you know, I had to go through my own um, grief process where I dealt with depression and I dealt with anxiety and, and suicide. And it was a pre- pretty miserable time in my life. So I use my own experiences to help motivate me and to realize that, you know, the world's a little bit better place with compassion than it is without it. So, um you know, I was lucky enough to be invited to a nonprofit to be their keynote speaker. Um, shortly after, I was—I think I, it was right around the time I was retiring in 2010—and I, I just fell in love with it. You know, there was other veterans in the room. I almost felt like there was a calling for me to give back in this capacity because a lot of guys aren't comfortable speaking. A lot of people don't want to use their voice. You know, so there has to be somebody out there, kind of being the person for that person. So I've spoken in front of the Congress, Senate. I've been in the Pentagon, the White House. Now I work for the Gary Sneese Foundation as their Associate Director for Outreach. So there's always always work to be done uh, for our veteran community and for the families that are taking care of them. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the person out there struggling right now? To you know, What would you tell them? You know, bottom line is, you know, is what you're doing working? Because if it's not working, then there are a multitude of resources out there, whether a full program, a non-clinical program, if you want to go to a group therapy session, there's so much out there, so many things that you can do that are going to put you in a better place. And a lot of it has to come to perspective, you know, and I've seen some really great programs, both on the clinical and non-clinical sides, and you have to be willing to accept that help. If somebody else is telling you, you have to go get help and you're not ready, it's not going to do you any good. You're going to be closed-minded and it's not going to work. But if you realize, look, I need to do something differently, then there are things out there for you. Mm -hmm. 
Could you share your contact information with people who are interested in maybe hiring you as a keynote speaker or uh, maybe somebody who's interested in learning more about the foundation that you work for? Yes. The best way to reach me right now would be my my work email, which is mschlitz at GarySneezFoundation.org. Okay. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the show, Michael. I really appreciate it. I actually want to talk to you after because I didn't realize that my my husband deployed in August 2006. He retired in um, 2010. So we have all, some more talking to do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. And again, if there's anything I can do, please always feel free to reach out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Be sure to visit www.pattycatter.com for the latest podcasts, articles, and swag. Also, be sure to follow Patty on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Patty Catter. At Patty Catter.